Hello and welcome to the History of the Copts, episode 43, The Persian Conquest. So last time, we went quickly through the reign of Maurice and explored in details the civil war between Phocus and Heraclius' proxies in Egypt. As I mentioned last week, this episode would go through the same period but looking over the religious situation in Egypt and the wider Middle East. To go back when we last stopped, Peter, the Miaphysite bishop of Antioch, died in 595 AD and was replaced by Athanasius, known as the camel driver. This immediately drove down the tension between Antioch and Alexandria, where, as I mentioned before, Damian and Peter personalities played a large role. Pope Damian then followed him two years into the reign of Phocas, and he was replaced by an influential priest in Alexandria, Anastasius, who remarkably was a member of the city council of Alexandria, a top-tiered position in the administration of the city. Under Damian, the Coptic Church has quietly extended its reach in Alexandria and basically controlled all but seven churches in the city. Maurice turned a blind eye to this development as it was not a priority for his regime. But when Phocas took over, one of his many missteps, and partially why he was not very liked in Egypt, he ordered that the churches in Alexandria be handed over to the Chalcedonian Patriarch once Damien has died. Thus, Bob Anastasius found himself deprived of several of his wealthy churches, and like his predecessors, he was confined to the monasteries. But not for long so. Nicetus came to Egypt, and the civil war of last week upended the whole country. If you remember, in the process of taking Alexandria for Heraclius, Nicetus executed the Chalcedonian patriarch that was appointed by Phocas. This, in a way, created a dilemma for Nicetus. He could appoint a replacement, or he could leave Anastasius as the sole patriarch. For all his consolatory attitude toward the Miaphysites, Nicetus had to appoint a Chalcedonian patriarch. It is important to remember here, the Heraclius camp was interested in ruling from Constantinople. Egypt was just a stop on the way. So, letting the Miaphysite Anastasius reign alone was a non-starter, as it would have alienated many in the capital and made Heraclius' job very difficult. Nonetheless, Bob Anastasius and Nicetus seem to have gotten along extremely well, and an informal alliance between postmen and the Chalcedonian Patriarch saw a glimpse of what life could have been if the elite of the empire got their act together. For these men, there was really no other option but to get along. The Persians were underway, the most prosperous parts of Egypt were destroyed, and refugees from Egypt and Syria streamed into Alexandria. Nicetus started first by remitting taxes on the country for the next three years. 
This was followed up by dialogue between the Antiochian bishop, the camel driver, and Anastasius that was facilitated and urged by Nicetus. It took five years, and the Persians conquering Jerusalem, but the schism was eventually healed under the pressure, and as the statement of the agreement put it, quote, If any heterodox person inquires, how do you interpret what was written in the time of difficulty between the blessed archbishops? We respond, the writers have gone to God, but as for us, we are united. Still, even with the agreement, some elements from both camps were not very happy, and both Anastasius and Asenesius had to tread very carefully. But eventually, everyone moved on, and in a few years, the links between Antioch and Alexandria would be strong. The other part of the informal alliance in Egypt was the Chalcedonian Patriarch of Alexandria, John, known to history as the almsgiver or the merciful. Now, understandably, when Nicetus was looking for a replacement for the patriarch he executed, he was not interested in a firebrand Chalcedonian. Rather, he was looking for a competent, rich, mild-mannered man who can be a partner in the rebuilding. That man ended up being a wooded aristocrat from Cyprus, whose father was governing the island at some point. He was a layperson who was not even ordained as a deacon before being elevated to a patriarch. But that wasn't really a problem for Nicetus. John the Almsgiver, as his name implies, was a generous patriarch who used his own wealth as well as the wealth of the church to support the massive refugees coming through Alexandria. Homes for the poor were built, hospitals, and all kinds of social institutions meant to support the city. The primary source that retells his life mentions the vast sum of a 100,000 gold pieces being spent, and this sum was just a gift to help Jerusalem. And despite his history as a layman, he was actually a more of a Chalcedonian than the previous patriarch, and not in a divisive who's orthodox and who's a heretic style either, but in a more principled and assured way. The Trisagion, which was by now routinely sunk in all the churches of Egypt, Chalcedonian and Miaphysite, was banned from the Chalcedonian churches. All the beneficiaries of his charity were instructed to accept the, quote, four holy ecumenical councils and strive for repentance. There was no talk of obscure theological concepts, nor was there any type of elaborate converting ceremonies. No, it was simple charity and accepting the four councils. John the Almsgiver, in a way, had figured out how to heal the religious divisions. And it was not fancy henoticon or a piece of paper with big words on it that no one understood. Rather, it was charity and love for one's neighbor. Sufficient to say, he was extremely popular, and had the Persians not cut his reign short, 
he could have made major inroads for winning back the hearts of the Egyptians to the imperial government. Alas, the Persians came, and he escaped Alexandria to his home in Cyprus, where he died there a few months after. Now, before moving on, I want you to remember Jean, because next week we are going to talk about a patriarch named Cyrus, and the comparisons between the two is extremely helpful to understand the history of the Copts and the relationship with the Chalcedonians patriarch of Alexandria. And with this out of the way, we should probably check back on Heraclius, who was in the middle of his bid to the throne in the same time that Nicetus was consolidating his hold in Egypt. Basically, anyone with any sort of foresight in the capital reached the conclusion that focus was done very quickly. Egypt is in the hands of Nicetus. Heraclius managed to establish himself and Thessaloniki on the European side of the empire. And Syria was about to be lost to the Persians. We do not actually know how Heraclius managed to establish himself in Thessaloniki. The sources are silent. But essentially, once this was done, focus now only effectively controlled the capital itself and Anatolia. Subsequently, he was betrayed by his son-in-law who commanded his own bodyguard and eventually surrounded and cut to pieces and then burned by Heraclius' forces. Finally, on October 5th, 610 AD, after two years of civil war, Heraclius was crowned Emperor of the Romans, holding the dubious honor of the last one who would rule Egypt. After the coronation, Nicetus obviously stayed in Egypt and continued to serve the governor of the province. John of Nocco, in his telling of this story, remarks that Phocas, before he died, had sunk the treasury of the empire out of spite. A probable embellishment, but it serves well to explain what happens next. Within a couple of months of the coronation, Antioch finally fell to the Persians. This was followed by Damascus and eventually Jerusalem in 614 AD. The battle for Jerusalem was actually pretty brutal, and the Jews and the Christians of the city clashed multiple times. By the end of the whole thing, 60 to 90,000 Christians from Jerusalem were dead. Large sections of the city were burned, including the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and the Jews ruled the city on behalf of the Persians. From the strategic point of view, the loss of Jerusalem was only semi-important. But from an ideological, religious side, it was absolutely devastating. The pagan Persians have defeated the Christian Empire and in the process took the true cross from Jerusalem. To the inhabitant of the Christian Byzantium, it seemed that God have abandoned the Romans and the Empire is doomed. The idea here was that the Empire were God-chosen people, and knew Israel, so to speak. And the loss of Jerusalem was a big deal for the psyche of every soldier, farmer, 
and breezed. The reality on the ground, so, outside of Jerusalem, where it was more the Jews versus Christian dynamic than the Persians, the damage to the native population was light. Even in Jerusalem, within three years, the Persians and the Jews of Jerusalem had a falling out, and the city went back to Christian hands. The Persian advance through the Middle East and eventually Egypt is actually quite influential in the development of the Miaphysite church and the interactions between foreign conquerors with native Christians for the next few centuries. It is not only interesting and insightful in its own right, but it also directly influenced and inspired the Arabs who would follow the exact same Persian policies that were, for the most part, very successful. The Persians shrewdly have asked Miaphysite and Nestorian Christian clergy to follow them in the army. Then, when a city was captured, the Chalcedonian Patriarch would be expelled, and a Nestorian or a Miaphysite one would be ordained in his place depending on the population of the city. As it turned out, the Persian Shah was quite comfortable with Christianity and exploited the situation with a remarkable competence. He was married to Maurice's daughter, a Chalcedonian Christian, but more importantly, his favorite wife was a Miaphysite. Additionally, his court was filled with Nestorian officials and advisors. The picture of the Persians being a savage, pagan barbarians, destroying churches and monasteries, is mostly a work of later Heraclean propaganda. Now, to be sure, they did not trust Chalcedonian clergy as a potential fifth column, and when they got to Jerusalem, they exiled the Chalcedonians, who did not die to Persia. But this was more out of politically opposing the Church of the Empire, not Christianity as a whole. In a matter of fact, the chief primary Miaphysite source of this period, Michael the Syrian, expresses his approval that, quote, the memory of the Chalcedonians disappeared, and that, quote, the Lord made the iniquity of the Chalcedonians rebound and their own head. In Antioch, as I mentioned last week, the Jews there also rebelled when the Persians were in sight, and in that rebellion, the Chalcedonian patriarch was killed. This was basically the last Chalcedonian patriarch for Antioch for the next several hundred years, as the next one was ordained almost 40 years later, and it was a nominal office that resided in Constantinople. By then, Antioch was firmly in the hands of the Arabs. And, with the Chalcedonians driven out of Syria and Palestine, the Persians even tried their hand in playing the part of a Byzantine emperor and sponsored a church council to hold talks between the Nestorians and the Miaphysites. Not much came out of this council, so, other than a prayer that Khosrow, the Persian king, extend his dominion over the whole world. 
and a generic statement that stated, quote, As created natures, we could not contemplate the glorious nature of Christ's divinity. Basically, the Persian policy was to let the Nestorians be on the Persian side of the empire and the Miaphysite be on the Syrian side, was actively preventing attempts by both sides to gain an upper hand over the other. But this toleration did not mean Christianity was the state religion, or even a state religion, and repeatedly in all official state communication and propaganda, it was emphasized that it is not. And this is really the part which later influenced the Arabs. The Persians established a unique system where the head of the state would accept the patriarch of an area as an intermediary between the Christians and the government. In return, the safety and the protection of that specific bishop or generally speaking, the church hierarchy was guaranteed by the king. On an individual level, in return for legal toleration, the Christians were to accept the statue of a subject community, a different social class than the rulers, whose religion is clearly superior. This was very similar to the Islamic concept demitude, but we will talk more on that when we get there. For now, just know that the Persians for the most part let the Christians be in Syria and Palestine and clearly favored the Miaphysites and the Nestorians over the Chalcedonians, seeing that they were the official state church of their political enemy. This Persian policy of toleration but acceptance of inferior community contrasted sharply was the Roman ideology of the one church, one emperor. The Persians and then the Islamic world order had room for Miaphysites, Nestorians and Jews, so long as it was conveyed and understood that their religion is inferior to the state one. The Romans on the other hand could only live with one officially sanctioned religious institution and all other have to either assimilate or disappear, which will be illustrated very clearly next week when Heraclius forcefully baptized the Jews and then come up with another ridiculous theological formula to unite the Christians of the empire. Now, do not be deceived by thinking one ideology is better than the other for the native population. Demitude is just as bad as forcefully baptizing the Jews, which would come up very clearly as we move through the narrative. But to go back to our story, the fall of Jerusalem and the Persians' policies of ruling Palestine and Syria brings us nicely to the Persian conquest of Egypt, and as fate would have it, the death of Pope Anastasius. The successor of Pope Anastasius was also an influential member of the elite of Alexandria, whose cousin was a leading member in the city council. Bob Andronicus' reign would end up completely under a Persian administration, where the influence in the walls of the church was vastly reduced. Unlike Syria and Palestine, where 
their conquest was relatively light on the population. The conquest of Egypt was somewhat destructive, at least initially. Basically, what was spared in the civil war was destroyed by the Persians. And this initial damage was a direct consequence of stiff Coptic resistance. Resistance that was born out of the bad optics of what happened in Jerusalem, plus the fact that most of the monasteries in Egypt by this point were essentially fortified strong points that could resist. Not to mention, Alexandria, by all accounts, was a very tough place to take by conquest and, without a navy, which the Persians did not have, impossible to besiege. I have posted a map on social media and the website, but in essence, Alexandria was surrounded by water on two sides, the Mediterranean from the north and a large lake from the south. And to get to it from the east, he had to go through the marshy lands of the delta, where a large army would be very vulnerable. You also have to time your advance just right, as if it happened to fall from August to November. At best, you cannot get anywhere by land because the Nile is flooded. At worst, you would get stuck in a marsh surrounded by water. A fate that awaited the Crusaders a few centuries from now. But anyway, the best way to do it was to cross the Nile from around modern-day Cairo before the branches of the Delta start and approach the city from the west. But even then, you have to go through several fortresses that can withstand prolonged sieges. Babylon near modern-day Cairo and Deneco on the western delta being the big ones. And if you manage to do that, then you will still face the walls of Alexandria. The point here is that Egypt was able to resist conquerors if its elite decided it was worth it. And in the case of the Persians, many of them decided it was worth it, with the competent governing of Nicetus helping in cultivating those feelings. Thus, the initial invasion of the Persians was resisted, especially by the monasteries on the way. And in return, those monasteries were destroyed by the Persians and looted extensively. As the writer of the History of the Patriarchs puts it, and there were at Enathon, near the city, 600 flourishing monasteries, and the monks were independent and insolent without fear through their great wills, and they did deeds of mockery. But the army of the Persians surrounded them and the west of the monasteries, and no place of refugee remained for them. And so they were all slain with the sword, except a few of them, who hid themselves and so were safe. And all that was there of money and furniture was taken as plunder by the Persians, and they erect the monasteries, which have remained in ruins to this day. This passage is basically the only detail of the conquest that we have before Alexandria itself. In there, the city resisted for a while, until a foreign student from around modern-day Bahrain, which for the record 
used to be a mix between Arab, Jews and Persians back then, betrayed the city to the Persians. As mentioned before, Alexandria faced the Mediterranean from the north, and as the Persians did not have a navy, fishermen from the city had relative freedom to fish in the sea and then come back to the city. So this foreign student communicated this fact to the Persians, who then got a number of fishing boats, filled them with soldiers, and sent them to the city just before daybreak, dressed as fishermen. Then, once the disguised fishermen reached the city, they made their way to the western gates, and, after a brief battle, opened the doors for the rest of the Persian army. In the chaos that followed, both Nicetus and John the Almsgiver escaped by sea. Pope Andronicus stayed, and it seemed that he was left alone by the Persians. After the fall of the city, there was the usual murder and rape that is associated with these things. Also, how bad it is and the involvement of the small Jewish community of the city varies from one source to another. According to the history of the patriarchs, the Persians essentially wiped the male population of Alexandria, and this was allowed by God because they were, quote, hypocrites in their religion. But most modern historians dismiss the story as an embellishment. According to later Arab sources, the Jews get lots of blame, and the traitor is implied to be a Jew. Also, again, they wrote much later, and the Jewish community in Alexandria was relatively small at this point. The traitor, as far as we can tell, could have been an Arab, a Persian, or a Jew, with the earliest sources being completely silent on his background. A.G. Butler, in his Arab Conquest of Egypt book, seems to conclude that the Persians did not commit any more slaughter than a Roman Christian army would have done have they conquered a wealthy Persian city. And I tend to agree. In Upper Egypt, the same patterns of resistance emerged, and it took three to four years for the Persians to finally subjugate the whole of Egypt by around 620. For a perspective, in a couple of years, the Prophet Muhammad would immigrate from Mecca to Medina, and progressively, while the Persians were ruling Egypt in that decade, the new movement would, bit by bit, consolidate its rule over the Arabian Peninsula. But to go back to Egypt, once the conquest was over, the Persians basically used the same policies that worked in Palestine and Syria. Miaphysite bishops were guaranteed safety and served as the representative of their community, was Andronicus being on the top of that hierarchy. Imperial administrators were left to do their job and collect taxes, but now, on behalf of the Persians, on farming and trade, which have suffered heavily under the war, started to slowly recover. While the Persians were in control, and after the death of John the Almsgiver, it seems that no Chalcedonian patriarch was elected to replace him. And for the first time for a while, there was only one patriarch of Alexandria, 
the Coptic one. Now, there seemed to be a certain George who may have been elected as a Chalcedonian patriarch, but if that's the case, he never came to Egypt and his office was entirely on paper. So, all in all, the 10 years or so where the Persians were ruling Egypt gave a glimpse to the Egyptians of life both Byzantium, and this life was not that bad. If anything, the aristocratic elite were thinking that their initial resistance was a mistake. The ecclesiastical hierarchy, on the other hand, had serious qualms about being ruled by non-Christians. But all the elements of this hierarchy that could have resisted were put down by the Persians. So nothing was going to come out of this corner for a while. As the bishop of a town in Upper Egypt put it, quote, Because of our sins, God has delivered us to the nations without mercy. The situation in Constantinople was not any better. The Persians have reached all the way to Chalcedon before even finishing up their conquest in Egypt. Constantinople was besieged by a combined effort of the Persians and the same tribe that Maurice was trying to put down before the army rebelled. This could have been the end. No more Byzantium, probably no Islam either, as the Persians would have been strong enough to crush the Arabs. And who knows what sort of dynamic Christianity would have had had the Persians consolidated their control. The old empire of Cyrus the Great was being resurrected and taking shape before our eyes. Alas, Constantinople would survive. Heraclius would retrieve the true cross and the Persian empire would collapse. First by their own internal fighting and then very shortly the Arabs. Thank you for listening. Farewell and until next week.